0: Let's turn in our Bible to Matthew chapter 17 as our Truth Encounter teacher, Dave Woodson discusses the Transfiguration, the second time God's heavenly voice introduced His Son. As you listen, ask yourself, who do I believe this man, Jesus, actually is? If I'm supposed to commit my life to this risen Savior, Then why in the world didn't God give a voice from heaven that identified that son? Why in the world isn't there more tangible evidence to prove that Jesus is the one Messiah that we should worship? You know, I find those kinds of questions very interesting. Because often they fail to take into account the credible witness that we have in the scripture. In actuality, if people would open up the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they would find out that not just once, not just once did God the Father say, hey, this is the one. I invaded planet Earth. I have sent my messenger, and this is the one you're to listen to. Not just once did God do that. Now, if it happened once, that would be enough. But it didn't just happen once. Three times... God the Father broke the silence of that steel curtain, you might say, between the eternal kingdom and this earth. And God the Father, in an audible voice, said, this is the one. And that's why our faith, as I talked to you about being free from fear, you don't need to be afraid. Even death doesn't need to be a fearsome boogeyman that scares the willy out of you. The reason we can speak with confidence about that, we don't just worship a Savior who's a religious symbol. He is the beloved Son that God the Father has authenticated. Let's turn to Mark chapter 8. We want to look at at an account called the Transfiguration. We've studied together about the Messiah's power over demons, over disease, over death. We've seen the Lord Jesus in his ministry. Now we're going to begin a process beginning with the transfiguration as we move towards the cross and the resurrection. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be walking with Christ on a steady course from northern Israel down to the south and eventually up to Jerusalem. And this pathway to the cross and the resurrection is fittingly introduced by a glimpse of the kingdom. If you turn to Mark chapter 8, you have one of the highlights of the entire career of Peter. In fact, it's an incredible thing, but in Mark chapter 8, we have Peter going from the sublime to the ridiculous. We often talk about going from the ridiculous to the sublime. In Mark chapter 8, Peter goes from the sublime to the ridiculous. As we begin Mark chapter 8, verse 27... Jesus and his disciples were going up to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And it certainly is going up. If you were an Israelite back in the first century, if you were a Texas Israelite, instead of going to Colorado to go skiing, you would go to the north. A lot of people don't think about the Holy Land being like this. When I tell you we've got a scene in the Holy Land, what you picture is adobe and sand-colored buildings and sandy plains, and the wind is blowing the sand across this destitute desert. That's not at all the scene that you should see as we think about Caesarea Philippi. It's like Colorado, no joke. There's mountains around there that go up 9,100 feet in the air, snow-covered peaks. Up to the north of Mount Hermon is the whole Lebanon range, two big ranges of mountains. That go well up over 9,000 feet. And there's pine trees around. And it's Caesarea Philippi. There's a gigantic pile of rocks. in the side of the mountain. And right out of those rocks. Comes a gushing spring. Just like somebody turned on the faucet. Of a great pipeline. And as the water surges out of the mountain. In about 30 feet. It's a full blown river. Called the river Jordan. That's so famous. Well, Herod built a city, Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, right at the headwaters of the Jordan. And that's where Jesus has gone. He's getting away from the Roman authorities because this was kind of an out-of-the-way, mountainous place. Most of all, he's getting away from the Jewish leaders and he's getting away from uh, Herod that wants his life. And he's having a quiet time as he begins to prepare his disciples for the grueling, grueling suffering that's going to take place as they move towards the cross. So for over the next several weeks, we're going to have kind of a private time with Jesus Christ. We've been looking at his impact upon the world. Now we're going to look at his impact on his inner circle. And so as we're walking with the Lord Jesus up towards this beautiful mountainous region, Jesus says to his disciples, Who do people say that I am? What is the gossip around Israel about who I am? Who am I? Well, they replied, well, Lord, some say you're John the Baptist. Some think you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Remember, Herod that cut John the Baptist's head off, he thought that was who Jesus was. The John the Baptist spirit, it might have been that kind of idea that the spirit of John the Baptist had come back in the person of Jesus and it just scared the the living daylights out of Herod. So that was one of the common ideas. Jesus is John the Baptist, come back to life. Somebody else said, oh, he's Elijah. Because Malachi chapter four made a prediction that before the Messiah came, before God sent his anointed one into the earth, Elijah would come. Malachi four promised that. So it was a common tradition in the first century that Elijah would come. So when a prophet came on the scene, like John the Baptist, many said, isn't this Elijah? And the Lord Jesus said, in a way he was. Because the spirit of Elijah, the same Holy Spirit that rested on Elijah, rested on John. But John the Baptist wasn't Elijah come back to life and living on the earth. So that was another idea. Maybe Jesus was Elijah. Still others said one of the prophets. Maybe thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 18, that promised that there would come another prophet, Like the prophet Moses. And so a lot of people were saying, well, maybe he's the prophet. Then Jesus says to them, okay, that's what everyone else thinks about me. In fact, if I were to contemporize it, I would be something like going around Midlothian and say, well, who do you think Jesus is? And we get the common different beliefs of people. He's a good teacher, he's a good prophet, he's a good religious symbol, um, he's part of our culture. You know, you to have a lot of different answers like that. Those are the kind of answers the disciples gave. But then Jesus turned to his innermost circle and he said, who do you think I am? And I think that's an important question. I think if Jesus were here in the body today, he would go around to every one of us and he would have the power to do that because he can talk to every one of our hearts individually. The answer to the question, who do you think Jesus is, is the most important question that you could ever get the answer to and as the children grow up and go away to university and go out into a job it's very possible you'll go through different phases in your life some of you that have been raised in a bible church that question will weigh on your soul who do you think Jesus is I've sat in classrooms with professors that believe that Jesus was just like any other teacher if you go to a religious department most of the time you'll hear Jesus is studied along with different other great religious leaders—Confucius, Buddha, Mahatma Gandhi, several different, maybe even Martin Luther King. On down the line of different religious teachers, and Jesus is studied like that. And you're going to be challenged. Who do you think Jesus is? Now, I want you to remember what I talked to you about, because I'm going to tell you. And it's a question you ought to ask. It's not wrong for you to doubt. In fact, if you go through your life and never doubt, there's a good possibility that you've never really even believed. Because when you feel something strongly and you you have convictions about something strong enough, there's usually a strong reaction inside that's pulling the other way. And so I go through times in my life where I wonder, who is Jesus? Maybe the whole thing isn't true. Maybe I shouldn't get up and preach. Say, Dave, you mean to tell me sometimes you get up on Sunday morning and you're wondering whether the whole thing is true? Yes, I do. You say, well, Dave, why do you preach to us then? If you're not sure, I am sure. Subjectively, sometimes my emotions aren't sure. But I know who Jesus is, and that's why I preach to you. Because I'm counting my whole life that I've got the right answer to the question, who is Jesus? Who do you think I am? And I'm going to join with Peter, because look what Peter says. Peter, this rough hoon Galilean fisherman, He says, you are the Christ. The crowd is saying you're a prophet. They're saying you're John the Baptist. But I believe that you are the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the ultimate king. Because in the Old Testament, a king would be anointed by a prophet. A prophet would come, like some of the children remember the story of David, when Samuel went and anointed David with oil. What Peter was saying is, Lord, I believe that you're the ultimate David. You're the ultimate son of David. When a priest was anointed to become into his office, like Aaron, when he was anointed to be the priest of Israel, Moses would anoint him with oil under the guidance of God. And, And what Peter was saying is, I believe that Jesus is the ultimate priest. When Elijah needed to pass his mantle on, to the next generation, to the next chosen man, he went to Elisha. Those names are easy to get confused. Elijah went to Elisha and he anointed him. And what Peter was saying is Jesus is the ultimate prophet. But more than that, the Old Testament said that the Messiah was going to be the Son of God, the ultimate family member of the deity that would come to this earth to tell us the truth. And what Peter was saying is, I believe that you're the only answer. I believe you're the only one. Jesus is the Messiah. And if you lose that, then Christianity becomes innocuous. It becomes bland. It's like lukewarm. It doesn't do anything anymore. When Christianity has power, it's when believers like yourself and like myself join with Peter and someone says, who do you think Jesus is? And you say, I believe he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the only hope for this planet. When Peter said, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, he was saying, I believe you're the one that I need to give my entire life to. Now look how Jesus responds. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. Now Jesus will never tell you after his resurrection, And after the anointing of the Spirit of Pentecost, Jesus is not telling any of you... Now, don't go and tell anybody. One of you asked me this week, like, why in the world did Jesus tell the people that were healed not to say anything? Why did Jesus tell Peter? You know, man alive, if it was the truth, why not tell anybody? Because one of the reasons was in the first century, the Jewish people had a totally different idea of what it meant to be the Messiah than what the real Messiah had in mind. You see, all that they saw in the Old Testament was the passages that talked about a Messiah who came riding in on his stallion with his clothes stained in blood, conquering all of his enemies, and all the Israelites could see, the dominant party of the Israelites, the zealots especially, what they saw was a Messiah that would beat the Romans, conquer the Romans, So if Jesus' disciples in the first century, when Jesus was living, went around telling everybody, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, it would have produced a revolution. Now, Jesus was going to generate a completely different kind of revolution. It was going to be a revolution not built on the manifestation of brutal, violent power. It was going to be a revolution that's very hard for us to understand. The greatest power of Jesus was going to be displayed not when he healed a cripple or when he raised the dead. The greatest power of Jesus was going to be displayed when he was totally weak and totally helpless and totally at the mercies of his enemies. And that's when his omnipotence was going to win the greatest victory. Now, brothers and sisters, what I just told you goes totally against our natural man. You see, we understand power and aggression and going for it. What we don't understand is being willing to be weak, being willing to suffer. That's the problem with a lot of our lives. You see, if you're trying to be a Christian and what you really want is power and prestige and authority and the ability to do whatever you want to do, then you're following the wrong Savior in this present time. Because the Savior we're following right now is a Savior that needed to go to the cross. And that's why he told his disciples, don't disseminate it now. I am identifying myself to you. Because you're going to be my credible witness that authenticate that this whole thing is true. But don't tell anybody yet. Because in the plan of God, I need to go to the cross and there cannot be a revolution. I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice for the sin of the world which will produce the ultimate revolution. Now the disciples didn't understand very much of that. We're still struggling after the happening to understand it. But that's why Jesus said not to be quiet. You know the one time that Jesus came out boldly and openly and said who he was? It wasn't here. And it wasn't when he was raising the dead and when he was healing the sick. The time that he boldly said, I am the Messiah, was when he was before the rulers and totally at their mercy. When they asked him, are you the Christ? He said, yes, I am. So different so different from the way we would do it but you need to ponder brothers and sisters I would challenge you to meditate on a passage like this because as American believers especially if I were speaking to Russian believers today especially the older ones that had gone through a lot of suffering they would know exactly what we were talking about their heart would be beating with what I'm saying Indonesian believers that are under persecution they would really know what we're talking about But as American believers this is really tough because we're proud We know power. We know what it's like to win. You see, it's deep in my own soul. If I'm in a volleyball game, somebody even said to me last night, when I came out for a minute, they said, boy, your competitive juices are going. Because I like to win. How about you? The Lord wants us in an athletic contest to like to win, but when we're doing it for power, and for prestige, and I, and I had to think when we got through playing last night and we won, I felt better because we won. How many of you feel better when you win? You feel more alive, you feel better, you feel like life is great. I used to get discouraged when the Cowboys lost. I don't now. <laughs> That's all about pride. It's all about pride. Why did I feel better? And Jesus is saying, I want you to get behind. I want you to get beyond all that. I want you to get into a value that's free not to get caught up in all that pride and all that self. I want to teach you reality. And so Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anybody yet. And then he began to teach them about what I've just started to share about the path of suffering. Brothers and sisters, as Americans, we take aspirin to get rid of suffering. We take aspirin for everything. The littlest pain, we want to escape it. We are the people on earth. Anything you can do to get rid of pain, do it. Now, there's a certain element of truth in that. The Lord doesn't want you to, to hurt yourself. I'm not calling anyone to be an ascetic. I don't want you to become a monk and go and starve yourself to death and fast. I don't want you to go and, and hurt your body with whips. That's totally opposed to what Jesus is saying. But I want you to listen carefully because what Jesus is going to say in the next moment is going to cut across the dominant philosophy of the average American today. It's very tough on us. It's hard on me and it's hard on you. Look what he says. He then began to teach him that the Son of Man must what? What? suffer. The son of man must suffer. You know why he had to suffer? Because God's will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus had to suffer because he was in enemy territory. Jesus realized there was a tremendous conflict going on. The kingdom of God against the kingdom of evil. And therefore he would suffer. And that's why he's saying the Son of Man must suffer. If Jesus didn't suffer, there wouldn't be any victory. We would not have any forgiveness. Jesus could have stayed in a heavenly North Dallas. We sharing yesterday with a brother in Christ. You know, some of you have the dream. What you want to do, you want to work hard so you can live in a nice home so you can drive nice cars, so that you can have good health insurance policies, so you can retire and then have a good time. That's what you're living for. I want to share something with you. If the Son of God took that philosophy, He was in the ultimate North Dallas. Some of you that have lived up there, I drive up there, and and I have some really good friends. I've counseled people up there. I don't want to live in North Dallas. But you know, I know in living and talking with people and getting beyond the stained glass buildings and the high rises and the beautiful carpets and everything, there's tremendous agony, hurt, broken families, drug abuse, all kinds of sin that's permeating that city. So that's not a good motivation. It's not a good goal to live for. You'll never follow Christ living for that goal. Nothing wrong with a house, nothing wrong with a car. Something terribly wrong with being on a pursuit, driving to have that. You know why? Because it's not a good enough value. And you won't be following the right master because Jesus lived in the ultimate North Dallas. In fact, his North Dallas is so rich that for gravel, they use gold. You ever stop and think about that? Their county commissioner puts, instead of blacktop, they pave with pure gold. Now, that shows you what God thinks about materialism. He walks on what we think is great. You know what? You're going to walk on it someday, too. But if you're going to walk on it someday, don't love it now. Because if you do, you're not following the Master, and I'm not either. Jesus said the Son of God must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected. Oh, that I, Lord, I don't like that. And especially, he's going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He's going to be rejected. How many of you like rejection? Nobody likes rejection. There's a large part of me, the people, I want to be respected by the elders, by the teachers of religion, by theologians. I want to be respected. How many of you want respect? You want to be respected. We hate to be rejected. You know what? Just put it in your cap. If You follow the master you're going to be rejected. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have people that think that you're wrong, that you're crazy. A lot of you say, you say, Dave, how in the world do you keep presenting the gospel? I remember when I first came to the church, I got up at a baccalaureate and presented the gospel. Now, I want to share something with you. You all come up and you say, oh, that was great. I'm so glad that you did that. There are some other believers in the town, they come up and they say the same thing. But you know what a lot of people think? I hear other people that will say, you know, he's he's a nice guy. But you know what? That guy, every time he speaks, he gets that Jesus blankety-blank in it. You know what? I don't like that. That hurts. I don't like to be rejected. There's been times, as I've been sitting, getting ready to come up and speak, my human mind is saying, Lord, this time I'll make it really soft. I'll get it in, but I'll make it, they they might miss it. And the Lord will kind of grab me by the back of the neck and say, no, you will not. If you do, you're not preaching next Sunday. If you forfeit, If you don't allow my spirit to work through you and you say what I put on your heart to say, then forget it. And the Lord's very tough that way. I say, Lord, I don't want to be rejected again. I don't like it when they say, hey, he's one of those fundamentalists again, those crazy people. They're always talking about you've got to be born again. You know what Jesus said? He says, Dave, and he says to every one of you, you're going to follow me, you're going to be rejected. You know, I found it very comforting for the Lord to tell me that. Because when it happens, it's like I was prepared. I find it's a lot easier to handle things in life when you're prepared for it. When you're expecting it. So if you realize, if you follow Christ, you're going to be rejected. You kids at school are going to have some friends that laugh at you, think you're nuts. Even some of our little guys come up to me and Janae will say, Man, I tried to talk to my friend about Jesus and they didn't like it. They climbed all over me about it. I say, Janae, welcome to the club of disciples. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be rejected. Our master was rejected. We're going to be rejected. But he goes on and says this, and he must be killed. That's a hard one. We might even have to give our lives. He was killed, but after three days, he'll rise again. You know, that's the big difference. You say, Dave, are you asking us to be a bunch of Iranians, little kids that are sent to the battlefield? No. Your heavenly master will never ruthlessly send you to any battlefield if you give your life though when Chet Bitterman died in Columbia in the task of translating the scripture the Lord said Chet it's a battle but I'm gonna rise again I rose again and you're gonna rise again and that changes our concept of martyrdom completely from a false concept it's not that we just flagrantly go out like as as church history began to develop There were many believers that flagrantly went out and tried to be martyred. That was the end thing. There were some centuries in the church where the end thing among a body of believers was to be martyred. Because then you were canonized. You were put in a high place. The Lord never taught us to live like that. But he says, if you believe on the Messiah, it's a truth that's worth dying for. I've shared with you in the past, if you analyze it, brothers and sisters if you don't have anything worth dying for, you don't have anything worth living for. You know, I remember seeing a film many years ago where uh, James Gardner hit the beach of Normandy. He was a reluctant soldier. And the last thing in the world, he was an aide and he was sitting in the office and by some mistake he ended up on the beaches of Normandy. He was supposed to be the first naval conqueror of Normandy and they were going to make a big hero out of him. Well, the whole essence of the film was the total rejection of the whole idea of invading Normandy. It was absolutely ridiculous. We don't want to fight anybody. We just want to get along. Now, that philosophy would work really, really well if there wasn't an enemy. But because there's an enemy and because freedom is valuable, on Veterans Day, we'll remember the soldiers that died to make us free when we come over into the cause of Christ, we're talking about values much more precious than democracy, much more precious than a limited freedom that a political system can give us. Jesus is the ultimate source of freedom from guilt. And that's why Jesus is saying he must die and rise again and why we must be willing to follow him and deny ourselves. Now look how Peter responds to all this in verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at His disciples, rebuked Peter, and He said, Get behind Me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You know, that's tough. Peter goes from the the sublime to even worse than the ridiculous. He becomes the mouthpiece of Satan. You see, Satan, through Peter, Challenge the Lord Jesus with the exact same temptation that we studied it back in Matthew chapter 4 when we studied the temptation of Christ when Satan said, Just bow before me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world now. Just bow down before me and everything will be fine. You won't have to go to the cross. That's why the Lord said, Get me behind me, Satan. Because just like Satan came to him in the wilderness, in his disciple, Satan was coming again. Boy, that showed us about the complications and the duplicity of this battle we're in. One minute as a born-again believer, I can confess he's the Messiah. The next moment, I can be the mouthpiece of the evil one who gets in control of my life and try to discourage the Son of God from going to the cross, which is the ultimate meaning of his life. You know, that can happen in our own life. You know, some of the worst, some of the worst discouragement can come From those that are closest to it, can it not? Remember Job's wife? Just curse him and die. That was tough, wasn't it? And the disciple has to, with Job say, even if he slays me, I believe he's the Messiah. He's the only hope I have. If I lose him, I don't have any life. The great thing about Peter's example is he could go from the sublime to the ridiculous, but by God's grace, he could go back to the sublime again. And he could have write the epistles of Peter which talked to us about the event that we're going to look at. You say, Dave, you've been asking us, look at the, what Jesus says in verse 8. It says, if anyone will not come after me, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or why can man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, which is what it means to deny him, if anyone's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Now this is what Jesus is saying. It's not too hard to follow. The Messiah is challenging every single one of us to commit our entire life to him to fall in love with him, to be committed to him. He's calling the students to go into every school and to be unashamed of him. One way to challenge yourself about that is do you thank him for the food when you get ready to eat? It's a good way for you adults in public, in a restaurant. What do you do? And, and you need to ask yourself why? Don't I want to do it? Because it raises questions. It causes people to say something. And that's the hardest thing for a teenager. But the problem that we're wrestling with is we're ashamed. And I wrestle with that. Say, Lord, give me an opportunity. But you don't say anything. You don't say anything. Why not? And I'll tell you one of the reasons why I don't sometimes... It's because I'm ashamed, because I'm afraid. I'll never forget one scene. We were at the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, and we were watching the, the Olympic Games, and it was up in New York State, and, and an advertisement came on. And while the advertisement was on, somebody in the group right next to us started just cussing the living daylights out of the TV set and everything else for some reason. You know, all every name of G that you could use, he used it illegitimately. Now my response to that is, nothing. You know what I say? I say, it's kinda dangerous, there's a lot of people here, I don't know who they are. My dad was standing right next to me and he tapped the guy on the shoulder. And he said, you know sir, the name that you just used really means a lot to me. I've trusted in that name for my eternal life. It would mean a lot to me if you respected it. <laughs> you know me. I mean? I was going, I was shaking, I could feel it. There was a hush over that group. One of the greatest examples in my life, comes from my dad. My dad, sometimes he wasn't there when I needed him. I'll be honest. I think it's really important to be honest. But I will be eternally grateful for a consistent testimony of a dad who was unashamed. He was unashamed. I remember one time we were on Wall Street with all these brokers going by. My dad had a singing group with him. And he got told the sing group, get up there and sing. So they get up there and shake, and they start singing. And my dad said to the guy next to me, Marv Rosenthal, who's with a Jewish evangelism group, and I was sure glad he pointed at Marv. I could see his finger going like this, and I thought it was going to come down on me, and I going, oh, no. Marv got up there and started preaching. And I'll never forget that. Marv, this old converted Jew, started sharing his testimony of how he met Christ. And people are going by, they were laughing. They were laughing. And Marv never missed a lick. And then people started to stop. You know, because my mom and dad did that kind of foolishness, because they were unashamed, even in a setting like that, there was a young woman that came by a street corner one day and my mother was unashamed and she led this young New York woman to Christ. For the last 50 years, she's been in the jungles of Columbia, founding churches up and down the rivers. Sophie Muller is like the apostle, female apostle Paul. But the Lord created that gem of life because the believer was unashamed. I thank God for so many of you that are unashamed. You see, the Lord wants us to invade this entire area unashamed of the words of Jesus. You say, okay, Dave, why should I do that? Why should I be willing to risk my life? Why should I have people laugh at me? Why should I, why should I make that kind of commitment? Because I want you to be glorified. Because I want you to have a cause that is so unbelievable that one day you're going to walk on streets of gold. Someday your clothes, some of you that are into clothes, don't live for clothes here. This is a bad market to be into clothes. Terrible market to be into clothes. The clothes are bad news. It's cheap, tinsy stuff. They have to shine lights to get sequins to glow here. If you girls go out and buy a beautiful gown, They put sequins on it. Isn't that right? And you put sequins on it, they don't glow by themselves. If they do, you have to wear batteries somewhere on you. I'm going to tell you why I want you to give your life to Christ. You say, they prove it to me. On Mount Hermon, probably on that mountain, and it's so indicative, the disciples were sleeping. (laughs) Here, you know, isn't that like us? One of the greatest events in all the universe is going to take place, and we might miss it because we're catching a nap. And by the way, if anybody says, oh, it was just a vision, it was just a spiritual happening, then throw the text out. I mean, a text that tells me they were asleep, they were zonked out, but then they got fully awake. It says when they were fully awake, Then they saw, when a liberal tells me, oh, it was all just a spiritual vision, they had a dream. I dreamt last night, Peter had a dream of the transfiguration. If that's true, just throw the text out. I mean, a text that tells me they became fully awake, takes the time to tell me what city they're at, what time is in the Lord's ministry, how many days after Peter's confession it was. A text that does all of that, and then I find out, oh, it was just a spiritual dream. It was kind of like a vision they saw. Throw the text out. Don't be halfway in between. You know what I believe happened? I believe that on a literal mountain, a real savior that I could eat with, that I could, that I could hug, a real living, honest-to-goodness person that was born as a baby in Bethlehem on a mountain in Israel, and he didn't tell us exactly which mountain it was because we probably worship the mountain. But Jesus, at a specific time in history, all of a sudden, the Lord took off his camouflage. We don't have many hunters here. and They know what camouflage is. So you'll understand what I'm talking about. For a brief moment of time, Jesus took off his camouflage. For just a brief time. And the disciples woke up and they were fully awake. I think they got fully awake because when Jesus took off his camouflage, It was incredible. It says that all of its clothes were radiating such light, they were so white, that no Clorox bleach in this planet could make clothes glow like that. A bride wears beautiful white. This, a bride's dress looks like it's just some murky, dull, lousy fabric because this kind of a thing just radiates his face shone. Everything about Him was just radiating glory. It says that in a moment of time, Jesus took off the camouflage and let the disciples see Him for what He really was. You see, if Jesus asked you to die for Him, He doesn't ask you to die for Him and say, well, that's, you know, that's good, you gave your life for me. That's it. It was a bad joke. You died. You see, if we're ever called to give our lives, I want you to remember the Son of God on this planet already gave us a glimpse of what he's going to make us into as he radiated the glory. You see, Dave, how do I know that people rise again from the dead? How do I know that people are living after they die? Give me some proof that when people die in Christ that they're still alive. Who was Jesus talking with? Elijah and Moses sound to me like they're ticking pretty good. Moses died 1,440 years. Not quite that long, but about 1,400 years before this event took place. And what's he doing on the Mount of Transfiguration? He and the Lord are having a conversation. Elijah died hundreds of years before this happened. What are they doing? They're talking with Jesus. That's the certainty I have. If Elijah and, and Moses are alive, then Mary's brothers are alive. Then my mom is alive. Then Nani, Lewis and Papa are alive. Our loved ones that we have lost, those of you that have lost loved ones in Christ, Elijah and Moses said to you this morning, they're alive. And if Jesus takes away the veil, if he eliminates the barrier between that kingdom and this kingdom, which he did at the transfiguration, then he can carry on a conversation with Elijah and Moses, which means that they're not just floating out there, some mysterious, uh, weirdo kind of a being. They're people, personalities, they can talk. I don't know how Peter knew who he was. Maybe he saw snapshots of Moses. No, he didn't really. I don't know how he knew who he was. You know, maybe he had a long beard like in the Ten Commandments. I don't know how he knew who it was. He said, it must be Elijah and Moses. Maybe they identified themselves. But that tremendous manifestation of the transfiguration says, Jesus is not going to let it end in death. And isn't it kind of the Savior before they went to the cross, Jesus let his disciples see the glimpse of glory. You know why? To show us that when he hung in weakness on the cross, it wasn't because he was weak. And that's a very important concept. When the Bible talks about denying yourself, it's not the unhealthy psychological drama of saying, I am nothing. I am worthless. I am a dirty little worm who's not worth a blessed thing. Therefore, I let everybody walk on me. It's also not this unhealthy system of, I'm going to work hard. I will be the slave. I will be the servant. If I work hard enough, then I can earn someone's love. It's not that at all. Jesus gave his life because he was the king. He was totally valuable. His clothes radiated glory. His presence would last forever. He was the ultimate king. It was out of that sense of total identity that Jesus made that beautiful gift of love and he gave himself. And that's what we need to learn to do. We need to learn that if we're a slave and I'm in bondage like that, I kill my master with loving, dedicated, unbelievably skillful service. Why? Because I'm the son of God. I'm a child of God. I'm not anybody's slave. I'm the son of the king. So I can live for temporary quarters, not feeling down about myself, not feeling like a nobody, but able to live to serve. That's what the transfiguration is about. It's about a glimpse of the glory of the Messiah before we start that difficult journey down. You say, Dave, what does the transfiguration have to do with me today? The Lord Jesus took off his camouflage For a moment of time, so the disciples, Peter, James, and John, would be able to authenticate he is the king. You know, Peter wrote many years later, I saw his glory. John wrote, and we beheld his glory. Those fellows never got over that. You say, Dave, but what about us? I haven't seen glory like that. You know, a transfiguration, as we close, is supposed to be taking place in this group. Did you realize that? Not the glory of a radiating physical presence yet. A bodily presence. Not a splendorous body yet. But a splendorous character should be shining forth brighter and brighter and brighter. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 3:18. He says, Moses went up on the mountain and he caught a vision of God and his face shone, but he put a veil over it because of the decreasing shine. Peter says, I mean, Paul said with unveiled faces we behold Christ and slowly but surely instead of a fading glory we have an ever-increasing revelation of the character of God in us. Romans 12, 1 and 2 said it like this. I beseech you, brothers and sisters, because of the unbelievable mercy, the forgiveness, the gracious acceptance that you've received in Christ, I beg of you, I urge you, present your bodies not to your boss, not even to your family, not to getting a nice home anywhere, not to driving a fancy car. Don't present your bodies just living for stuff. He says, what do you want to do? Present your body a living sacrifice. Dedicated completely to the Lord. It's the same thing Jesus said, if you want to gain your life, you've got to lose it. It's your reasonable service. It says, why? That you might prove what God's will is. That which is perfect, which is acceptable, which is good. And then he says this. Don't be conformed. Don't let the world pour you into its mold. Don't let the value systems of a secular planet pour you into their mold. Don't live according to that drumbeat. Instead, be transfigured. The same word is used. Be transformed. Be metamorphosed like a butterfly, like from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I never get over the incredible reality of the grace of God. I speak about an event that happened almost 2,000 years ago. And yet as the Holy Spirit moves among us, it helps us to grab a hold of reality again brothers and sisters if you lose your life in the messiah you say lord i'm gonna live today unashamed of you i will speak up for you i will present the gospel i'm gonna live my life for that i'm gonna live my life with a passion to make jesus known i'm gonna live my life with a passion to be obedient in a sexually immoral society, in a covetous society, I'm going to live for the glory of the Lord. And it says slowly but surely every day you see Jesus. You see Jesus manifested in us.